Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, dyscalculia and mosquitoes. In addition, we'll be joined by Donald Schmidt, who will talk about Witness to Roswell. Also, you can find out why ice is less dense than water. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. And I guess it makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Losing count these days. <laughs> Try to keep count of uh, how many fingers and toes I have, but that doesn't really... 13, right? Yeah, I lost a few, so <laughs> which brought me down to 13. Lucky number. So this symptom is actually called dyscalculia, similar to dyslexia with people who can't keep their words or letters straight. The area in your brain known as the intraparietal sulcus, or IPS, is the area which is crucial for processing and numerical types of information. And scientists have always wondered what exactly happens when the brain counts. Confusing part is the question of how many versus how much. They both happen in that same region of brain, and it's hard to distinguish which brain signal corresponds to which. So, for example, if you're in a shopping line, this is an example that the researchers give, would you count to see which line has the fewest number of people, or would you just look and see which one is the shortest? So that's the difference between how many versus how much. Sounds like one's more of an exact measure and the other's rough estimate. Right. These researchers at Caltech and University College London have shown how learning techniques may be helping for people with these type of disorders to these people who don't know how to count so well. So what do they do? They just give up numbers and maybe associate that with some other thing that they can remember? So it's a little bit trickier than that. What they've done is using their favorite tool, fMRI. They identify the areas in the brain that light up when they're trying to count. And what they did in their initial test is that the subjects were exposed to different colors and they were asked to count how many were present and this was done with a series of blue or green flashes on a chessboard. What they found is that if they have distinct colors, the brain automatically counts it, whereas if you show a continuum of green or blue lights that are blurred, the brain does not count the objects and instead estimate the relative amounts of each of them. So from their paper, they claim that this can be used now to see if some technique is helping people overcome dyscalculia. I guess I, I can use that then instead of a calculator. <laughs> the human calculator. Yes. This, of course, was published in our very favorite journal. Oh, it couldn't have been. <laughs> the Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. Well, I hope you haven't lost count of the number of days in the year. 100, 200. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a very special day, of course. It's somebody's birthday. Somebody's birthday? Indeed. Hey, we should get a cake and stuff. <laughs> well, you need about 233 candles. That's a little bit over my budget. I'll just settle for one. <laughs> okay. So whose birthday is it? Uh, of course, it's our good country, America. Oh, the U.S. of uh, A. That's right. Or is it U.S. and A? High five. High five. Planning anything special for this uh, 4th of July? No, just the usual little barbecue action. Uh, are you going to have the mosquito nets up? Don't think that's a problem around <laughs> this area, is it? Not as far as I can tell. And Unless if... we're transforming to a swamp. Global warming and everything, you never know. Yeah. Right? But of course, certain areas that are more swampy have mosquitoes, which can transmit disease. Okay. And of course, the main disease that mosquitoes transmit in some areas is malaria. Those damn vectors. Right. I prefer scalars. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're easier to multiply. 
people have for quite some time been trying to rid regions of malaria. Mm. And one obvious strategy is just try and make mosquitoes resistant to the malaria itself so that it can't pick up and transmit the bug. But this is a little more difficult than it sounds because resistant mosquitoes actually tend to fare less well in the wild than non-resistant mosquitoes. By making resistance to malaria, somehow it weakens them. So it's not understood why. So researchers at Johns Hopkins University have started using a gene called SM1, which is actually a gene in rodents uh-huh. that is resistant to the rodent form of malaria, okay. plasmodium. And what they've done is they've transfected that into the mosquitoes and got these mosquitoes to be resistant to malaria. And what happens is that these mosquitoes then actually now will outperform the wild-type mosquitoes. Oh, really? And they'll breed more. and they'll be- So the idea is that this particular gene might actually be useful for increasing the selective advantage of these mosquitoes. And you okay. can hopefully use that to spread the gene throughout the environment. Well, sounds a little dangerous to me, actually. <laughs> well, you know, you're tampering with Mother Nature, so you never know. But again, there's all kinds of questions with this technique. Obviously, the lab conditions might vary or it might not actually transfer to human malaria. Why don't we just genetically engineer people who are resistant? To malaria. <laughs> we could all move to Antarctica. This too was published in a recent edition of our favorite journal. Science? Uh, science is a good journal, <laughs> but the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Penis. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Donald Schmidt will join us to discuss Witness to Roswell. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, 60 years ago, an event took place in a small town in New Mexico that would capture the public's attention and turn their focus to the stars. The town of Roswell is, of course, the site of the reputed UFO crash in 1947 that continues to intrigue researchers to this day. Well, what really happened at Roswell? Join us today is Mr. Donald Schmidt. Mr. Schmidt has been investigating the incidents at Roswell and is co-author of two best-selling books on Roswell, one of which became the TV movie, Roswell. His new book co-authored with Thomas J. Carey, entitled Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up, continues the exploration of this fascinating event. Mr. Schmidt, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and uh, I think this is certainly a, a very fascinating book. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, by now, the events of Roswell have sort of percolated out through popular culture. It's really no small part due to your uh, books that you wrote previously. It's truly become a household word. <laughs> Indeed. In the last, uh, 15 years, yes. Right. There's probably people still out there who aren't familiar with the events of that July there. I'm curious if maybe you could give us a brief history of the events that took place. Certainly. Post-World War II, New Mexico, the first detonation of an atomic bomb in 1945 in New Mexico. You had ongoing uh, atomic research in Los Alamos, New Mexico. You had White Sands Proving Ground where they were testing and firing off uh, the captured German V-2 rockets. So it was the, the hotbed of military activity at that time. And as one would anticipate, if indeed someone was watching from off the planet, so to speak, that according to the Air Force's own Project Blue Book, which was their most famous official UFO investigation. There were more UFO sightings in New Mexico around that time than anywhere else. And if we truly were being visited, that uh, there may be a mishap, one may malfunction, and one may crash. 
and that indeed appears to be the case. July of 1947, there was a severe lightning storm about 75 miles northwest of Roswell, and a rancher the next morning would discover a, a huge debris field, much unlike a conventional plane, rocket, or even weather balloon. This was something that covered a full mile, a pasture area. Upon reporting it to the local law enforcement, Turn reported it to the Roswell Army Airfield in Roswell, which at that time was the headquarters of the 509th Atomic Group. This was the first atomic bomb squadron in the world. And they investigated the find and put out that famous press release that they had indeed captured a flying saucer. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess depending on how one looks at it, about five hours later, there was a press conference going up the chain of command where General Roger Ramey displayed a very common, very conventional weather balloon with a radar reflector kite. And that was the accepted explanation for about the next 30 years until the head of intelligence, Major Jesse Marcel, he was dying of emphysema at the time, and he broke his security oath. And he went public and stated on the record that what he handled, the debris that he handled, the wreckage that he handled right in his very grasp, were not from this earth, as he put it. And witness after witness, as we have tracked them down, afforded them an opportunity to also go on the record. Sworn affidavits and uh, more and more deathbed testimony. They're all telling us that very first explanation, the flying saucer, was indeed the true explanation. Huh. Jesse Marcel, as you mentioned, was uh, perhaps one of the few people who actually handled pieces of the debris. What did he actually describe the debris as, and how did he know that uh, it was certainly not of terrestrial origin? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, and it's, it's something that the Air Force, in their third and fourth official explanation, <laughs> they emphasized that Jess Marcel was one of the only witnesses to the debris. And yet we've talked to probably over 30 first-hand witnesses who handled that same type of material. Hmm. And invariably, they all describe the paper-thin, foil-like material that you couldn't cut, you couldn't burn. Uh, Marcel himself described how engineers took a 16-pound sledgehammer and pounded on a sheet about four foot in length, and the hammer would just bounce right off, wouldn't even scratch the material. There were silken strands that witnesses have described to us. You could hold a lighter up to one end, and the light would emit out the opposing end. Well, they clearly are describing fiber optics, huh. and this is in 1947. And there were I-beam sections with unusual hieroglyphic-like symbology that ran the lengths of these strips, these I-beam sections. And the most amazing material of all, which we call our holy grail, this is the type of material we would love to get our hands on, is the memory material. The material that just as strong, you couldn't cut or burn it, but you could crumble it, you could crease it, you could wad it up into a ball and place it onto a surface and it would flow, it would smooth out without a sign of any crease or fold. And we don't even have material like that by today's standards. As you mentioned, the government presumably might have switched the material for the balloon. We have witnesses to that effect, mm -hmm. yes. One was the late Brigadier General Thomas DeBose, who was even pictured with General Ramey in two of the photographs of the substituted weather balloon. And DeBose, before he passed away, signed an affidavit and did a video testimony where he swore that they switched the material, that the, as he put it, the balloon part of the story was a cover-up, and it was intended 
strictly to get the press off of the general's back. So they had some times, they had some a breathing room to deal with the situation and possibly get some answers. But when you have people who were right there who describe how they switched the material, it's hard to argue. It's hard to question then, well, it's just what you think, just what you say. They were the people who were there. Probably the other major witness to the initial events was, of course, the farmer you mentioned. Uh, Matt Grazel, yes. Yeah. Rancher, yes. He was actually a ranch supervisor. Uh, he was in charge of a 75,000-acre ranch at that time. He was so puzzled by the material that he would then get in his pickup truck and drive 10 miles to his nearest neighbor and display some of the material to them. He would go to other neighbors. He would take it into the nearest town, another 45 minutes away, uh, the town of Corona, and take it to the general store. He took it to a local pub where we even had witnesses who described passing it down from one end of the bar to the other. Everybody, you know, making an attempt to burn it, to cut it, whatever, you know, they could uh, try at that time and having no luck at explaining or, you know, identifying the material. And then he would finally take two boxes of the material. He'd make the 75-mile drive, mostly over dirt-packed roads, down to Roswell, and then report it to the sheriff of Chavez County. And Sheriff George Wilcox was so impressed with the material that he immediately dispatched two of his deputies to go check it out. So it all smacks of something much more unusual, just for the effort that the rancher went through, the effort that then the sheriff, in his attempt to get some explanations, and then by then reporting it to the base, to the Roswell Army Airfield, and then the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, dispatching not a couple of buck privates, not a couple of grunts that just go humor the rancher, he sends the two heads of his intelligence department. Major Marcel being the head of intelligence and Captain Sheridan Cabot, the head of counterintelligence. So it obviously impressed them as well. And this is still days before the press release goes out. So even the misnomer that Roswell, that, that the base commander overreacted, well, that stuff was out there for days. Nobody was looking for it. I mean, even the notion that this was something top secret on our part. And I've been out there hundreds of times, and I've flown over that area in small planes and even in helicopters. And it's high desert. It's open range for cattle and sheep grazing. And once you're airborne, you can see for 100 miles. So that is also very crucial in addressing the point that this was something top secret on our part. Well, nobody was looking for it. And if nobody was looking for it, then it's clearly suggested it wasn't ours. And if it wasn't ours, then whose was it? Indeed, the suggestion might have also been that it was a Russian device. What's interesting about that, at first, Colonel Blanchard thought that it could have been Russian. In fact, even his wife, Anne, has told us that that's precisely what he thought, only because if it's not ours, we can't identify it, then maybe it is the Soviets. But then he said that once they actually started to examine it, they quickly ruled out that possibility. Uh, General Arthur Exxon, quote, frequently in the book, was at Foreign Technology Division at Wright Field in 1947, where much of the material came in for breakdown and analysis. And Foreign Technology is famous for doing a lot of the reverse engineering of captured weaponry and armory from World War II. So it made perfect sense that if you had something you couldn't identify, it would go to FTD. And according to General Exxon, 
that the boys in the lab, as he put it, they too first thought that it had to be Russian, only because nobody could identify it. But he said that after it was analyzed, that there was a unanimous consensus, and to quote General Exxon, that the material had to be from space. To the original balloon explanation, held for 30 years, Major Marcel went public, and then others uh, with the first book by Charles Berlitz and William Moore in 1980 provided additional first-hand witnesses. And the government still laid low. There was no official response. And the book didn't receive that much fanfare. And it wasn't until our first book, UFO Crash at Roswell, came out in 1991 that we started to get a lot of media attention. And then with the pre-production of the Roswell movie, and then the second book, Truth About UFO Crash at Roswell. And during the course of that time, we had enlisted the support of the late congressman from New Mexico, Stephen Schiff. And he made very ardent efforts through the White House, through the Pentagon, through all the branches of the military and intelligence to get the files released. And he finally felt wasn't getting anywhere, so he then went to the GAO, the General Accounting Office, Congress's own investigative department. And I think it was more of a preemptive strike, as even Newsweek magazine put it, when in September of 1994, the Air Force had a Pentagon press conference, and their Colonel Charles Weaver displayed what they called their new theory. And he admitted that the original balloon explanation was a lie. He used that word repeatedly throughout the press conference. And then they presented this new theory that it was the same type of balloon, but that it was part of a top secret project at that time called Mogul. Unfortunately, again, for the debunkers and the scoffers, we're still talking about the same type of balloon. We're still talking about the same type of materials. We're still talking about neoprene rubber. We're talking about reflective foil. We're talking about wooden sticks. We're talking about masking tape, uh, bailing twine, no less. And the only thing that they would suggest not only confuse the rancher, but all the military personnel, all the way to the base commander at Roswell, was this acoustic listening device, this microphone. And MOGA was nothing more than a high-altitude radar observation balloon for the purpose of detecting a sonic wave in the event the Soviets would detonate their own atomic bomb. Okay, there was such a project in the summer of 1947. The Soviets wouldn't detonate their first bomb until August of 1949. But again, it suggests that the materials are the very thing that confused all of these people to the extent of proclaiming that it was extraterrestrial, uh, stretches credulity. Yeah. To this day, it's something that a five-year-old child would have recognized. Perhaps one of the more amazing claims of the whole adventure is that alien bodies weren't recovered. What's the evidence for that? The evidence, again, would be first-hand testimony. Even the release of that press announcement, because there's a growing number of first-hand testimony about a site much closer to Roswell. In other words, there were multiple sites. And what led us to believe that the rancher, Mac Brazo, had seen something much more, something much more urgent, something much more threatening, was the fact that even after the balloon explanation, they detained him at the base in Roswell for another five days. And even after he was released, he refused to ever talk about this again. He complained that he felt like he was in jail, 
They subjected him to an army physical. They kept him up all hours of the night. They questioned him, asked him the same questions over and over again. And he would make inferences to seeing something else. And then there was a reporter by the name of Frank Joyce from KGFL in Roswell, who actually was the first member of the press to talk to Brazel when he first reported the find to the sheriff's office on Sunday, July 6th. The reporter just happened to call up the sheriff's office to get the daily scuttle for his next news report. And the sheriff said, I think there's somebody here you might like to talk to. And according to Joyce, who's still alive, lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that the rancher, he didn't really get the name, first was quite angry about all the wreckage, who was responsible, who was going to clean up all that uh, debris. And then he became more and more somber and talked about it being a flying saucer. And then he became quite frightened when he started talking about it was horrible. It was horrible. And Frank Joyce kept pressing and finally said, what are you talking about? What was horrible? And then he said, the smell. The smell was just just horrible. And Joyce, putting two and two together, asked, well, are are we we talking about bodies? You know, the... They're launching those rockets over at White Sands. Maybe they, you know, they had an animal in one of those rockets. Maybe it was a monkey. And according to Frank Joyce, the rancher fired back. It wasn't any damn monkey. They weren't human. Hmm. Those are the things that started suggesting. If indeed we had a vehicle, then it was more than likely we had a crew. And if we had a crew, was there even a possibility there was a survivor? Within the last five years, we have two first-hand witnesses, even to that effect, that there indeed was a survivor. We don't even know that it lived much longer than the recovery operation. In fact, there was some talk at that time about something being killed. They killed it. There was talk about a photographer, for example, who was in contract with the base returned home, and his father seemed to be in a trance, in a daze, and kept saying repeatedly, they killed it, they killed it, that type of thing. We know that bodies and debris were taken to right field. The um, infamous Hangar 18 legend, and the story of an alien ship and its crew being sent to right field in Dayton, Ohio. And then I'll stem back to Roswell. So we can trace, we have numerous flights that transport debris and bodies from Roswell through Fort Worth, where General Ramey was headquartered, and then on to Wright Field. But beyond that, this would be pure speculation. Hmm. What is the uh, status now of the government's explanation and the status of further inquiries into the whole incident in Roswell? Well, I had mentioned they were up to their fourth explanation, Mm -hmm. and that being the anthropomorphic wooden crash dummies. (laughs) And this was a project that was even five years removed, to which the Pentagon responded, well, you know, as people get older, they suffer from time compression, and they even tend to confuse not only the years, but also the decades. Well, I find that to be totally fallacious and almost unbelievable as the very story that the witnesses are telling us. But nonetheless, even that explanation was a victory, because... The government was acknowledging some semblance of bodies recovered. So they weren't denying that people were seeing bodies. It's just that they tried to explain it away as being these high-altitude wooden parachute test dummies that didn't even start until about five years after the incident. 
we, we constantly hear that the government is working on a fifth explanation as we speak. <laughs> so even a Pentagon spokesperson, when, we, when he was asked by a reporter, well, what happens if the people don't believe this explanation? To which he responded, I guess we'll be back in another few years offering another one. <laughs> Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and find out what that one is then. Well, we're going to go with the witnesses because uh, these were the people who were there. Mm -hmm. And deathbed testimonies are admissible in a court of law. And invariably, they're not only saying that the first press release was the correct one, but they're also describing the bodies. They all mention the little people, as they, des they describe them, mm. that were recovered at the crash site. Well, it is certainly a very fascinating... Uh, we could go on for hours. Oh, so complicated, so detailed, but that's what we try to encapsulate with the book. The book, it is, of course, called Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. Mr. Schmidt, thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And you were just listening to Mr. Donald Schmidt discussing Witness to Roswell. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 plus the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic alien or human. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they are a human or maybe not of terrestrial origin. Mr. Schmidt, are you ready to play a game? Well, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Alien or human, person number one, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that would be debatable, but uh, let's say <laughs> a human. Okay. <laughs> Just imagine him on, a, on another planet. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, maybe the universe isn't safe. <laughs> King Donald, yes. <laughs> All right, number two is Robin Williams. Alien. Mort from Ork, yes. <laughs> and he's still nonetheless just as alien today, right? <laughs> All right, number three, uh, golfer Tiger Woods. Alien-like ability, superhuman ability as far as on the golf course, but, but certainly human. <laughs> Uh, number four is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, I would imagine people in California might uh, robot, so <laughs> to speak, but let's say as the governor human, yes. Okay. <laughs> Though he did get reelected. So, yeah, that's yeah. true. So he must be doing something right. Uh, and finally, uh, number five is the president of the United States, George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of people would like to send him to another planet, <laughs> but <laughs> let's hope for uh, at least for the next year and a half. <laughs> that for the betterment of the country that uh, he is human. He certainly has demonstrated a lot of human qualities and a lot of human frailties through the years. So, All right. Well, Mr. Schmidt, I, I do want to thank you for sticking around and playing our game and, of course, talking about your book, Witness to Roswell. Again, it was my pleasure. I thank you. Mr. Anderson, trying to escape the crystalline matrix, but it makes ice more dense than water. 
and Forrest was this week's question of the week. I may be stupid, but I know what a lobotomy is. If you know or think you know what a lobotomy is, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but at least it won't be frontal. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.